This is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast. Today we're going to talk about stroke and transient ischemic attack, or TIA. In the ED, we are the front line in dealing with stroke and TIA, and we need to get it right so our patients can avoid lifelong disability. Today we'll talk about how to recognize stroke, the actions that we need to take in the first few minutes of the patient's arrival, how to make sure we don't miss any other disease processes, and how to treat our patients with stroke and TIA. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Shawshank EM Residency Program. Before we start talking about the patient presentation, let's talk a little bit about the definition of stroke and TIA. It is important to note that a stroke can be caused by two different processes. Strokes can be divided into either ischemic or hemorrhagic. An ischemic stroke is caused by an acute clot in the cerebral artery. A hemorrhagic stroke is caused by a leaking blood vessel with resulting bleeding into the brain. Let's talk about an ischemic stroke first. We call this an ischemic stroke because it is cutting off blood and oxygen supply to brain tissue. When we are talking about an acute clot, we are referring to an actual blood clot that is formed in the artery or a clot that has been formed elsewhere and embolized to the brain. An example of this would be a patient with atrial fibrillation who has developed a clot in the left atrium that breaks off and goes to the brain. You can also have septic emboli from an infected heart valve that showers into the brain, although that is a much more rare situation. Basically, any process that can cause an occlusion of blood flow can cause an ischemic stroke. The second way a stroke can occur is bleeding into the brain. This can happen several ways, but it is usually caused by a ruptured aneurysm or bleeding from arteries that have been stressed by years of hypertension. It is important to distinguish between these two kinds of stroke because it greatly affects our treatment. Now let's talk about the clinical definition of stroke in TIA. A stroke is simply a sudden onset of a new neurological deficit. A TIA is defined as a patient who has a new neurological deficit that rapidly improves or resolves over the period of minutes to hours. Frequently, patients with a TIA will have a deficit that resolves even before they get to the ED or it will improve rapidly after their arrival to the ED. The vast majority of patients with TIA are back to their baseline within 30 to 60 minutes. This difference is important to know because it greatly affects her management. We need to remember to be vigilant to see if the patient's symptoms are improving, because it may save them from unnecessary thrombolytics. Let's review that section so we can make sure that we keep the definition straight. A stroke is caused by either an acute clot to a cerebral artery or bleeding in the brain. The most common cause of a clot is either a clot that is formed in the artery or a clot that is embolized from somewhere else, such as a patient with AFib who throws a clot from their left atrium. This represents an ischemic stroke. A hemorrhagic stroke is caused by bleeding in the brain, usually from a ruptured aneurysm or bleeding from arteries that have been stressed by years of hypertension. A stroke is clinically defined as an acute onset of a new neurological deficit, while a TIA is an acute episode of new neurological deficits that resolves or rapidly improves, usually over the span of minutes to hours. Now let's talk about how to approach the patient who is having signs or symptoms of a stroke. Many times we will get a good heads up from the pre-hospital providers that a possible stroke patient is coming and we should be ready for their arrival. If you have a specific stroke protocol that you can activate before EMS arrival, then do it. For the pre-hospital providers, there are two big things that you can do to help the patient. Get a good history from the patient or bystanders and check a D-stick. If there are family members or anyone else with the patient, it is really helpful if you can bring them to the ED so we can talk to them directly. If you can't bring them for whatever reason, make sure you get a good history of exactly when the patient's symptoms started 
and when the patient was last seen to be acting normally. This is crucial information because it makes a huge difference in how we treat the patient. It is really important to make the distinction as to when the patient was last seen normal because if the patient woke up with their symptoms, they may not be eligible for thrombolytic therapy. The standard window for thrombolytic therapy is to start them within three hours of symptom onset. There is newer data that allows the window to be extended to 4.5 hours in select patients. We will talk about how to make that distinction later when we talk about thrombolytic contraindications. When you are getting the patient's history, also try to clarify whether this deficit is a new deficit or an old one. As far as treatment, do all your standard ABCs and make sure that the patient is protecting their airway. Both ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes can cause mental status changes that may necessitate you taking the patient's airway. Finally, you need to get a D-stick on every patient with a possible stroke. I've said this many times before, but I'll say it again. All patients with altered mental status or any neurological changes are hypoglycemic until proven otherwise. If you ask a group of VM attendings, at least one will have a story of a patient who was about to get thrombolytics for their stroke when their chemistry panel came back with a glucose of 10. So one last time, always check the D-stick. As a quick aside, the theory as to why hypoglycemia can mimic a stroke is that most of these patients have had a stroke before. When they get hypoglycemic, that area of their brain that was affected by the previous stroke is the most sensitive to low blood sugar, and that is why they are having neurological deficits. If you have a patient that is having a possible stroke, once the patient arrives to the ED, you have five main priorities. Get a good history, do a rapid neuro exam, get a D-stick, get IV access and labs, and get a non-contrast head CT. Let's start at the beginning and talk about the important parts of the history. First, you need to find out exactly when the symptoms started and be as specific as possible in regards to the onset of symptoms. Be sure that the patient didn't wake up with their symptoms, because if they did, then we really can't know for sure what the onset of their symptoms were. You will want to ask about what symptoms the patient is having, such as confusion, motor weakness, inability to speak, facial droop, or syncope. Also make sure to ask about headache or trauma. Did these symptoms start after the patient had a sudden onset of the worst headache of their life that could represent a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Did the patient fall down and hit their head and now has left-sided weakness from an intracranial bleed? Was there any history of seizures either in the past or with this current episode? Make sure to address these concerns because they will be important when we decide if the patient has any contraindications to thrombolytic therapy. Once you get a sense of the history of the current neurodeficits, get a good past medical history. Focus on any history of hypertension, diabetes, and previous strokes. Make sure to ask whether the patient has had any surgical procedures in the past month and get a list of all their medications. Make sure that the patient is on any blood thinners such as warfarin, clopidogrel, or dibacotran. We'll talk much more about the exact history questions to ask when we talk about contraindications to thrombolytics, but these are the questions that should start you off. The next step is to do a very rapid neuro exam. In the episode on altered mental status, I talked about the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale. It has four components, facial droop, arm drift, slurred speech, and time of onset. You can remember it with the mnemonic FAST, F-A-S-T. You can expand this exam a little bit to include motor strength in all four extremities not just the arms. This abbreviated exam will give you a good sense of the patient's neurodeficits. 
While you are getting a history and doing physical exam, someone needs to be getting a D-stick and working on IV access. The D-stick is vital for the reasons we already discussed. However, getting an IV is the least important step in this initial process. Getting a non-contrast head CT in a timely manner is much more important and needs to be done as soon as possible. This is because the head CT will change our entire management. You can't do anything else, such as thrombolytics or clot retrieval by interventional radiology, until you get that head CT. When you're getting the IV, get blood for labs. At a minimum, you will need a CBC, a Chem 10, and coags. Any other labs should be dictated by the clinical situation and shouldn't slow your roll towards the CT scanner. While you're at it, get an EKG as well. The only thing that should delay a trip to the CT scanner is to take the patient's airway. While it is not ideal to go to the CT scanner without an IV, don't spend 10 or 20 minutes in the ED trying to get a line on someone you know is a tough stick. If the patient is maintaining their airway, then bring an IO insertion device with you to the CT scanner just in case and get that head CT. Don't get stuck on trying to get a line that you know is going to be difficult. That can be done after the head CT. The reason why this head CT is so important is that any intracranial bleeding is an absolute contraindication to thrombolytics. So we need to know as soon as possible whether there is bleeding so we don't waste any of the patient's window to get thrombolytics. Let's review that progression one more time. Be sure to get a good history and physical. Focus on what time the symptoms started using the patient, the patient's friends and family, and the EMS crew's resources. Get a thorough past medical history of the patient's medical problems, medications, previous strokes, and any recent surgeries. Perform a rapid neuro exam, including an evaluation of the patient's facial strength, extremity strength, and speech. Get a D-stick and rapid IV access, but don't let a lack of IV access delay your trip to the CT scanner. Get labs when you get your IV access. At a minimum, send a CBC, Chem 10, and coags. Anything else should be dictated by the patient's clinical situation. Also get an EKG. The only thing that should delay the trip to the CT scanner is to take the patient's airway if their mental status is depressed or deteriorating. In a patient whom you are already strongly suspecting a stroke, you should probably accompany them to the CT scanner with all your airway equipment. Watch that CT come off the scanner and give your own wet read. Talk with the radiologist in real time, if you can, and get a stat read. This is where stroke protocols can help. There's nothing magical about these protocols, but what they do is to get everyone on the same page and give your patient priority to the CT scanner and priority to get their CT scan read. It should also put a page out to your neurologist to get them either in the ED or on the phone for consultation. If you see a bleed on the CT scan, then the patient is not a candidate for thrombolytics. One thing you should do before the patient leaves that CT scanner is to perform another head CT, this time with contrast. Ask the CT tech to do a CT angiogram of the brain with IV contrast. This will help you talk with the neurosurgeon and plan your next move because this will allow you to see the vessels and see where the bleeding is coming from. Now, you probably won't have a creatinine back yet on the patient, but as long as the patient doesn't have a history of kidney disease, they should be fine, and the benefit to getting the CT with contrast immediately is much better than waiting an hour to get a creatinine. We'll talk more about management of hemorrhagic strokes once we talk about ischemic stroke management. Now let's talk about the flip side. You get the head CT, 
and the patient has no intracranial bleeding. Your next step is to get the patient back to the ED and do another neuro exam. If the patient's symptoms are improving, then this could represent a TIA, so this is why you need to do another neuro exam. This time you're going to do a more thorough neuro exam and use the NIH stroke scale. The NIH stroke scale is a standardized scoring system that allows us all to talk the same language in regards to how severe the patient's stroke is. If the patient has a low NIH score, then they may not be eligible for thrombolytics, and the same thing goes for severe strokes. In both of these cases, the risk of thrombolytics outweigh the benefits because the risk of intracranial bleeding from the thrombolytics is too high. The best thing to do is to look at a reference or print out the NIH stroke scale from the internet and go through each one and calculate the score. This will allow us to talk with a neurologist and be on the same page in regards to further treatment. Before we go much further, let me say one quick thing about thrombolytics for ischemic stroke. While they are an FDA-approved treatment for ischemic stroke, there's a lot of controversy in emergency medicine about their effectiveness and safety. I'm not going to go into all that controversy here because it is way outside the scope of this podcast. If you want a full discussion on the evidence for thrombolytics, go to the Smart EM podcast. In their most recent episode, Dr. Newman and Dr. Shreves did an excellent review of the world's literature on thrombolytics for ischemic stroke, and the data is not as clear-cut as you may think. That being said, if you're a medical student or intern, or you're taking some sort of emergency medicine exam, and the patient presents with an acute ischemic stroke within the window and with no contraindications, then the correct answer is to give the patient thrombolytics. I just wanted to put a warning out there so that you know that there is controversy surrounding this treatment. Let's talk briefly about how thrombolytics work. While there are more than a few thrombolytics on the market, for the rest of the podcast, I will refer to tissue plasminogen activator, or TPA, because it is the most commonly used in ischemic strokes. TPA works by increasing the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin. Plasmin then acts to degrade fibrinogen and fibrin at the site of the clot that is causing the ischemic stroke. The important thing to remember is that it doesn't attack the clot directly. It simply increases the natural rate of clot breakdown. Now let's get back to the patient. You have a patient with an acute ischemic stroke who is within the window of treatment, has a persistent neurodeficit, a normal blood sugar, and a negative non-contrast head CT. The next step is to carefully determine whether the patient has any contraindications to TPA. As with the NIH stroke scale, I'm not going to spend a lot of time drilling each and every contraindication into your head because you need to look them up and check each one off the list. You need to be absolutely certain that the patient does not meet any of the contraindications before you give them TPA. If the patient has a contraindication, then I would have a long discussion with the patient and the neurologist and then let the neurologist make the final call. Briefly, the contraindications fall into four main categories. The first category is anything that would put you at risk for increased bleeding. The second category is severe hypertension. The third category is a history that suggests a subarachnoid hemorrhage or a seizure. And the last category is what I call the miscellaneous contraindications. Once again, don't memorize this list. Always look it up and check it off one by one before you give the patient TPA. As far as the first category of bleeding contraindications, they include surgery or trauma in the past 14 days, intracranial or spinal surgery in the past three months, a history of intracranial bleeding, aneurysm, or brain tumor, active internal bleeding or recent puncture at a non-compressible site, 
platelets of less than 100,000, and a history of warfarin use. Some studies suggest that you can still give TPA if the patient's INR is below 1.7, but that is controversial. When you think about it, these all make sense, because they would all increase the risk of bleeding in any patient. In a patient that is getting TPA, then that increased risk of bleeding can translate into a much higher risk of intracranial hemorrhage that can be fatal up to 50% of the time. The second major category is severe hypertension. The exact numbers are systolic BP above 185 or a diastolic BP above 110 despite aggressive treatment. This would make us concerned that the patient has severe hypertension that may lead to an increased rate of intracranial bleeds due to the years of stress on their cerebral blood vessels combined with TPA. If you need to lower the patient's blood pressure, use an IV medication that you can titrate easily, like nicardipine, esmolol, or labetalol. I won't go over how to use these medications here, just know to use something that you can titrate easily. The third category is anything that makes us think that the patient had a seizure or is having a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Patients with seizures can sometimes have focal neurodeficits after they stop seizing. This is called Todd's paralysis. These deficits usually resolve once the patient comes out of their postictal period, and it does not represent an acute stroke. So if the patient has a history of seizures, or someone saw them seizing, or something makes you strongly suspicious of a seizure, then throw the brakes on TPA until you figure it out. For example, if the patient was seen shaking with intraoral lacerations and incontinence, then you should be thinking seizure, not an acute stroke. As far as subarachnoid hemorrhage, if the patient has a headache that preceded their symptoms, then make sure to document the three big headache questions. Is this the worst headache of your life? Was it sudden and onset? And was it maximal and onset? Remember that a patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage may have neurodeficits that look like a stroke, and their head CT may initially be negative for bleeding, especially if it is within the first few hours of symptoms. So if you have a suspicion for subarachnoid hemorrhage, then throw the brakes on the TPA. The problem here is that the next test in ruling out a subarachnoid hemorrhage is a lumbar puncture that would make the patient ineligible for TPA. Once again, don't make this call on your own. Have the neurologist on board and clearly document that they have made the decision to give TPA, especially if you don't agree with it. The final category is what I call miscellaneous contraindications. These include a patient who is pregnant or lactating or has a high blood sugar. A blood sugar of a 400 can be a relative contraindication for thrombolytics. Let's talk briefly about the extended window of 4.5 hours. This extended window is based on new data that suggests that patients may derive benefit from TPA up to 4.5 hours from symptom onset. There are a few caveats to this. First, the patients in this data set did not include any patients more than 80 years old. Second, most experts strongly advise not using the 4.5-hour window in a patient with a history of both a previous stroke and diabetes because it increases their intracranial bleeding risk. Third, don't use the 4.5-hour window if the patient has more than one-third of their middle cerebral artery affected on their head CT as determined by the radiologist. Finally, don't use the extended window in patients on any anticoagulants regardless of their INR. Let's stop here and go over this one more time. Once you have the patient in the CT scanner, get an immediate read on their head CT. If you see bleeding, then perform a CT angiogram of the brain with contrast to find out where the bleeding is coming from. Once the patient is back in the ED, 
do another neuro exam, this time using the NIH stroke scale. You can find this online or on just about any emergency medicine app. Thrombolytics work by converting plasminogen, plasmin, which then degrades fibrinogen and fibrin. There are four main categories to TPA contraindications. First, increased risk of bleeding from recent surgery or anticoagulant use. Second, severe hypertension. Third, a suspicion of seizure or subarachnoid hemorrhage. And fourth, any miscellaneous contraindications such as hyperglycemia with a blood sugar over 400 and a patient who is pregnant or lactating. Do not try to remember these contraindications off the top of your head. Have a checklist and review each one to make sure that the patient doesn't have any of them. A window of 4.5 hours can be used in certain patients, but be sure to review those separate contraindications, such as an age over 80, a history of diabetes and a previous stroke, any anticoagulant use, and more than one-third of the MCA territory affected according to the CT scan. So now we finally come down to it. You have a patient within the window for TPA treatment who has a normal blood sugar, persistent neurodeficits, a negative head CT, and who has no contraindications for TPA. Now let's review exactly how to give TPA. First, I have been told by the nurses that I've worked with that it's nice to have two IV lines on these patients so the TPA can flow in a dedicated line and the other line can be used for anything else. So get two IV lines if possible. If it's not possible, then don't sweat it or let it delay TPA administration. Next, make sure to calculate the dose of TPA and then double and triple check it for accuracy. The dosing is a little weird, so it's easy to mess up. I had to look it up, and so you should too. The total dose of TPA is 0.9 milligrams per kilogram, with 10% given as a bolus, and the other 90% given over the next hour. The dosing for TPA maxes out at 100 kilograms, so anyone heavier than that should get the dose meant for a patient weighing 100 kilograms, or 90 milligrams at the max. So after a dose has been calculated, make sure to review it as a team for accuracy. Finally, I've seen one strange addition to stroke protocols that I think doesn't make a lot of sense, but let's talk about it. I've seen stroke protocols at more than one institution that call for a Foley catheter to be routinely placed in all patients prior to TPA administration. This is odd because all the medical literature I pull up says to avoid Foley's in patients getting TPA. However, most of the stroke protocols I can pull up on the web say to do it in all patients getting TPA, regardless of whether or not they can void on their own. I posed this question to my Twitter followers, and two answers came up from Lars and Javier on my Twitter feed. The first one was, either you don't want the patient to get out of bed to urinate and then fall, and then the second possibility is that you want to have the Foley in place if the patient develops hemorrhagic cystitis from the TPA so that you can flush the clots out. While these seem like reasonable explanations, I don't know that there's enough benefit from the empiric Foley compared to the risk of a catheter-related UTI. I could find no good evidence to support or refute routine Foley's in TPA administration, so follow your institutional guidelines on this one. Once the patient gets TPA, then they need to be admitted to an ICU setting, preferably a neuro-ICU if your hospital has one. Finally, if the patient has an ischemic stroke but can't get TPA due to the time window or contraindications, then you should still be talking to your neurologist about the next step. If your hospital has interventional radiology available, then the patient may be able to have an IR procedure to remove the clot. This is where having a stroke protocol and having a system set up ahead of time can help you because it's all set up and you aren't flying by the seat of your pants. 
Now let's briefly talk about patients with hemorrhagic strokes. These are managed very differently from ischemic strokes. In contrast to ischemic strokes, the consultant that we want on board is a neurosurgeon because surgery may be required if the patient has a large amount of bleeding. So if you have a hemorrhagic stroke without any known trauma, call your neurosurgeon and get them to see the patient. They may have to take the patient to surgery to evacuate the blood or to interventional radiology to coil a ruptured aneurysm or leaking vessel. This is where getting the CT angio of the brain with contrast is helpful because you can see the patient's vessels and determine where exactly the bleeding is coming from. In patients with a hemorrhagic stroke, you may want to lower their blood pressure while they're in the ED if it is high. Now this is a podcast all on its own, but the thing to remember is to use something that is easy to titrate, like esmolol, nicardipine, or labetalol. What I will do in these situations is to ask the neurosurgeon what they prefer, because they will be the ones managing the patient's blood pressure once the patient leaves the ED. As far as how much to lower the blood pressure, most guidelines say to lower to a BP of 180 over 105, but no more than a 20% reduction in the first hour, and to a MAP of less than 130. You aren't looking for a normal BP, you are just looking to take the edge off to slightly decrease ICP and reduce bleeding volume. These patients will also need admission to an ICU setting with a neurosurgeon consulting on them. If your hospital doesn't have neurosurgical capability, then you should probably transfer these patients to a hospital that does. Now let's talk about the patient with a transient ischemic attack, or TIA. We often call this a mini-stroke because it represents a stroke that lasts only a short time, usually less than an hour. The patient will have signs and symptoms of a stroke, but then they will rapidly get better, often on the way to the ED or while you're evaluating them. This represents a patient who had some sort of ischemic insult to their brain that is resolved on its own. However, make sure that the patient is not having waxing and waning symptoms. Sometimes patients with real ischemic strokes can look better, then worse, then better, then worse. If they're having this waxing and waning, then they still may be eligible for TPA if your neurologist is on board with it. However, if the patient gets better and goes back to their baseline without any waxing and waning, then this is most likely a TIA. So what do we do for patients that have a TIA? First, be sure to document a good neuro exam, and then do all the usual things that you do for a regular stroke. Get a D-stick, get an IV and labs drawn, and then get the patient to the CT scanner for a non-contrast head CT. If you're absolutely sure that the patient is getting progressively better, then you don't need to rush over there like you did with the patient having an active ischemic stroke. But if you have any doubt, then don't let them wait hours on the head CT. Once you have a negative head CT back, then document another neuro exam to make sure it is stable and not getting worse. Check the patient's labs and make sure they aren't abnormal and work up any other complaints. If everything is negative, then you should give the patient 325 milligrams of aspirin as long as they aren't allergic to it and admit them for further workup. You can usually admit these patients to a telemetry setting. Further workup for a TIA may include an MRI, an echo, and a Doppler of the carotids. The MRI will say for sure whether or not the patient had actual signs of a stroke. The echo will check for a patent foramen ovale, which can allow blood clot from the legs to break off, pass through to the arterial side of the heart, and travel to the brain. A Doppler of the carotids will see if the patient has a tight carotid. Many studies have tried to see if we can avoid admitting these patients by doing an expedited outpatient workup, but they have all shown that even when you get all this testing done within 72 hours, 
there is still a sizable percentage of patients who have strokes in that time period. Another reason why you want to admit these patients is to see if their stroke symptoms come back. If they do, then the patient may need TPA or some other intervention. Also, as I've said before, if you find a severely stenosed carotid artery, then you only need to fix six of those to prevent one stroke. Finally, I have one last thing to mention so that you don't get caught by the stroke mimic. Let's say that you have a patient in their 40s who woke up in the morning with flu-like symptoms, and then they notice that they are drooling uncontrollably and can't move the right side of their face. Everything else is fine, and the rest of the neuro exam is normal. I'm sure most of you realize that this is Bell's palsy, but it's worth reviewing. Bell's palsy occurs when some sort of viral or other inflammatory process causes the parotid gland to swell. Since the facial nerve runs through the parotid, this swelling compresses the nerve and causes paralysis on one side of the face. The patient will have a facial droop and will be unable to close their eye on that same side. The one very important thing to examine is the patient's forehead. Ask the patient to raise their eyebrows and look at the furrow in their forehead. If the patient can't move their forehead, then this is a good sign. If the patient can move their forehead normally, then that is called forehead sparing, and that is a bad sign. That could be a sign of a central stroke, because the forehead is duly innervated. So just be on the lookout for forehead sparing, and if you see it, work the patient up for a central stroke with a CT, then MRI. You don't need to routinely get a head CT on patients with Bell's palsy, as long as the presentation is classic and there are no red flags like forehead sparing or other neurodeficits. If the final diagnosis is Bell's palsy, then you should give the patient a course of steroids. Prednisone works well and will cause a decreased duration of illness. The recommended dose of prednisone for an adult is 60 mg PO for 6 days, then taper for 4 days. For the 4-day taper, have the patient reduce the dose by 10 mg each day until their last dose of 20 mg. Even though most cases of Bell's palsy are caused by viruses, antivirals are of questionable benefit. The Cochrane Review says that steroids are the only thing that works, but some clinicians make an argument for antivirals in some cases. If you use antivirals, you have two choices, acyclovir or valcyclovir. The dose for acyclovir is 400 mg five times a day for 10 days. Valcyclovir, or Valtrex, is a much nicer option because it is only twice a day dosing, but it's also much more expensive than acyclovir. The dose for valcyclovir is 500 mg PO twice a day for 5 days. The other issue to address is the patient's eye, since they won't be able to close it all the way. Make sure to have the patient use lubricating eye drops throughout the day and lacrolube at night to keep their eye moist. You can also send the patient home with some medical tape and have them tape their eyes shut at night. Eye patches really don't help a lot. Finally, make sure to let the patient know that it may take weeks or even months to get better. Bell's palsy really sucks because you can't eat or drink right when you can't control one side of your face, so just let the patient know that it may be a while before they are back to normal, and as always, they should always follow up with their primary care doctor, especially if symptoms last a long time, to exclude a more sinister cause for Bell's palsy. I know that section of Bell's palsy may have been a little overkill, but it's one of the most common stroke mimics so I thought it was important to review. That's all I have for now on Stroke and TIA. As always, please send me your comments and suggestions to my email at steve at emmesa.org, or leave a comment on the blog page, Facebook page, or Twitter. Before I wrap this up, just let me say a big thank you to you, the listeners. 
I started this podcast exactly one year ago today and has been an amazing experience. I never thought that this little project would have such a worldwide impact. It is really great to get emails from listeners tell me how much this podcast helps with their emergency medicine education. That is exactly why I make this podcast, and it's because of all the great feedback that I keep doing it. So thank you to everyone who is listening and has helped make this little project a big success. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off.